want to welcome you to the service this evening. want to say if you're visiting with us tonight, we especially appreciate your presence. Uh, for all of you that are here, we know there's a lot of places on a Friday night that you can be, and your interest in uh, studying the Scripture and in praising and worshiping our God is very admirable, and so we appreciate your presence in being here very much. Those of you who were here last night know that we are uh, covering a theme this weekend, a theme about the inspiration of the Scriptures and making a case for the inspiration of the Scriptures. We're looking at a lot of outside evidences, physical evidences, uh, things that we can use to show that the things that the Bible contains are accurate, are reliable, are things that we can build our faith around and build our lives on. Last night we talked about manuscript evidence, and we talked about the history of translations and how that there is an abundance of evidence that the Bible that we have today is accurate, it's reliable, and even through all of the translations through the last couple of thousand years, the message has remained there. And we can be confident and sure in the message that the Bible presents that it is the same one today as it was when it was written. Tonight, I want to look at a scientific view of Scripture. And that's what I've entitled the sermon this evening, a scientific view of Scripture. You know, when it comes to science and Scripture, there's a lot of disagreement, it seems, in our world, in our society. There's a lot of people that purport to be scientists or to uh, speak things of science who say that science would disprove what the Scriptures say. And that science as we know it, must be true, and therefore the Scriptures must be false. And I challenge that, and I want you to challenge that. And tonight we're going to look at some reasons why I believe we can challenge that and actually believe that science will back up and show that Scripture really is truthful and reliable. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture as we begin from 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul is writing to this young evangelist, and he says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Paul was admonishing Timothy in something very important. He said, stay away from the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Even in that day when Paul was writing to Timothy, there was so-called knowledge. So-called knowledge that people could get on board with and say, Well, I believe that. It's, it's been proven. It's science. It's knowledge. And they were wrong. And those that grasp onto those things and lose sight of the Scripture and don't allow Scripture and science to work together in harmony have strayed from the faith. Even 2,000 years ago, Paul said, Some have done that because of this false knowledge that they have clung to. In today's world, in today's society, there's a lot of false knowledge, I believe. I believe there's a lot of things that is presented to be sure and is presented to be fact and is presented to be science that really is not fact, it's not knowledge, it's not science, it's a theory and it's a hypothesis. But people that don't want you to believe the scriptures will tell you that it's fact and that it's truth. And I think we can challenge that this evening. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 is probably the most disputed Bible verse out there in the scientific world. Why? Because it claims this. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If you believe in the inspiration of the scripture, you must believe this verse. 
And there are some people that have taken Scripture and said, well, I believe Scripture, but... You know, maybe some of this other stuff is too, and maybe Genesis isn't really accurate, and some of the... You can't take some of it and cut out what you don't like. If you believe the Scriptures are inspired, then Genesis 1 verse 1 must be true, reliable, and accurate. And I believe science will back that up. But in today's world, there's a lot of fight against that. The argument of the Bible critic. These three quotes come from a man named Stephen Hawking. You've probably heard of him. One of the leading scientists of the day. He is an English theoretical physicist, cosmologist, author, and director of research at the Center for Theoretical Cosmology within the University of Cambridge. Now, that's a lot of of info that's supposed to make him seem really, really great and knowledgeable and smart. And he is a very intelligent man, but I believe that intelligence has corrupted his view of the truth. Here's what he says. One can't prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. The laws of physics can explain the universe without the need for a creator. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now that third quote, I'm not even quite sure what that means, to be honest with you. Why? Because there's a law of gravity that means the universe can create itself. Someone can take me aside afterwards and try to explain that to me. I'm not even sure why. But I'm going to challenge it. And I hope that tonight we can see that he's wrong. I want to make a case for creation as we begin. Did God create the heavens and the earth? Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3 says this, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The words we understand, it's a very uh, important couple of words. It means to exercise the mind, to observe, that is figuratively to comprehend, heed, consider, perceive, think. The writer of Hebrews, when he was pinning this, he's talking about the creation of the world, right? And he says, through faith, faith that is that believing, trusting uh, quality that we have in God, we understand, we perceive, we comprehend, we see that the worlds were framed by God. And I want to ask you this evening, regardless of the background that you come from, regardless of whether you believe in God or not, be open to the possibility Because a person that is closed-minded toward God existing won't see the evidence for what it shows. But a person, even that doesn't believe in God, but that says, I'll be open-minded and I'll consider anything, I believe will begin to perceive, will begin to comprehend that the worlds were framed by God. As the author here in Hebrews says, that we will gain an understanding of those things. Not that it is a blind faith. I want to start with some evidence for a created universe, right? That's what the scientific world presents today uh, as the start of everything would be what we might call the Big Bang Theory, right? That's what they say started everything was a huge cosmological explosion at some point out of nothing. It exploded and suddenly the universe exists. And I want to consider some ways in which we can challenge that. First of all, let's look at the complexity of our great planet that we live on. To me, it's much easier based on looking at the complexity of all that we have around us to believe that it was designed and that it did not happen from chance. Consider the size of our planet. 
The Earth's size and corresponding gravity holds a thin layer of mostly nitrogen and oxygen gases, only extending about 50 miles above the Earth's surface, the atmosphere that we have. If the Earth were any smaller, an atmosphere would be impossible, much like the planet Mercury. If the Earth were larger, its atmosphere would contain free hydrogen, like Jupiter, and life would be impossible. Earth is the only known planet equipped with an atmosphere of the right mixtures of gases to sustain human, animal, and plant life. Now, to me, that's amazing. And it's an amazing coincidence that of all the planets that we can view, that we can see, and of all the chances, if this all just happened by chance, that the earth would be just the right size, just the right size, so that all of this can exist, so that you and I can exist and live. To me, that's an amazing coincidence. The distance from the sun... The earth is located just the right distance away from our life-giving sun. Consider the temperature swings that we encounter on the earth. Now, there's some really cold spots in the earth. There's some really hot spots on the earth. But we can live and we can survive through even uh, quite a, a big swing between cold and hot. On the earth, roughly, the temperature swings between negative 30 degrees and 120 degrees. If the earth were any farther away from the sun, guess what we'd all do? We'd all freeze. If we were any closer, we'd all be too hot and burn up. Even a fractional variance in the earth's position to the sun would make life on earth impossible. And yet science today will tell you it just happened. It's just an accident. I say it's not an accident. It's rotation. The earth remains this perfect distance from the sun while it rotates around the sun at a speed of nearly 67,000 miles per hour. It's also rotating on its axis, allowing the entire surface of the earth to be warmed and cooled every day. And science tells me that's an accident. The moon... You don't think really much of our moon, do you? The moon actually plays a very important role when it comes to our life here. The moon is the perfect size and distance from the earth uh, for its gravitational pull. The moon creates important ocean tides and movement so that ocean waters don't sit there stagnating, but they also don't come rushing across the continents, destroying everything in its path. And yes, I know we have tsunamis and things like that that happen occasionally, but the vast majority of the water stays there. And that's due to the moon and the gravity uh, that holds that there and the tides that it controls. And science tells you that that's just an accident. I say it's not an accident. I say there's a design behind it. And to me, it's too big of a coincidence. To me, it's too big of a step out on faith to say, I believe that all of that happened by chance. The astronomical odds that that could happen. And I want to tell you that even the Bible, I believe, gives reason and explanation for some of these things. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. And I believe it. Because when we look out at the complexity of this great planet, of the solar system, of the universe around us, I hope that you see the handiwork of God and not some miraculous chance. Consider universal laws. Have you ever noticed that much of life may seem uncertain, but we can count on certain things throughout the day, right? A hot cup of coffee left on the counter, what will it always do? It'll always get cold. 
The earth will rotate in the same 24 hours over and over again. The speed of light doesn't change on earth or in galaxies far from us. Everything is consistent. Everything is calculated. How is it that we can identify laws of nature that never change? Why is the universe so orderly, so reliable? If it was all chance, why would there be order? Why wouldn't there be chaos? If it was all just an explosion, have you ever seen an explosion? Does order result from an explosion? When something explodes, generally pieces go flying everywhere and it's chaos. And yet there's order. Why? Richard Feynman is a Nobel Prize winner in quantum electrodynamics. He says this, Why nature is mathematical is a mystery. The fact that there are rules at all is kind of a miracle. Now, he's not a creationist. He's saying, it's kind of, we, do, we can't explain it. It's miraculous that there are laws. There shouldn't even be laws. It's not a miracle. It's design. It's creation. We can see that. The person that's open to faith can look at the evidence and go, why is there order? Maybe it's because God made it that way. Jeremiah thirty-three twenty-five says, Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth. You know what ordinance is? It's law. Jeremiah is saying through inspiration that God appointed the laws of heaven and earth. And that's why there's laws there. That's why there's consistency and reliability around us. Because God created it. I want you to think about something else. Cause and effect. Right? The law of causality. The cosmological argument goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Would you dispute that? Would anybody here dispute that? That something that exists has a cause. Because as I look around and I look at anything, anything that I want to use as an example, it started somewhere. Something caused it to happen. If something was built, someone built it. Or something built it. It didn't just come from nowhere. The universe began to exist, right? We're here, therefore it began to exist. And I'll tell you, science won't even dispute that. There was a time when they said, well, maybe the universe has been here forever. And they don't say that anymore because they recognize the universe has a cause. There has a beginning. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. There is something there that started everything. It did not come from nothing. It was not a random cosmic egg that exploded. That's just foolishness to me. There's a cause behind everything. Everything in our known universe is subject to cause and effect. If an event happens, there is inevitably something that caused that event. Yet though this concept is universally accepted, evolutionary scientists try to explain the beginning of our universe by saying that out of nothing, suddenly a cosmic explosion occurred and when the dust settled, our amazing universe suddenly exists. This is an effect without a cause. Yet I want you to consider that not one of those scientists would argue that the car in their driveway, suddenly out of nothing, exploded into a working vehicle. I want you to consider that not one of those scientists would argue that they were walking on a hillside one day and boom, an explosion happened and their house appeared and even the plumbing works. Not one scientist would argue that and yet they'll say the universe began in exactly that way. 
without God, without a designer, without a divine spark. It just happened. Don't be fooled by theories that sound good. Don't be fooled by smart men with a lot of letters after their name that say we can explain exactly how everything happened without the need for a God. Because I believe the common person can look at the evidence and see the hand of God within it. Genesis 1 verse 1 is your cause. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And I believe the scriptures are inspired and I believe that that verse is true. And that God did create everything that we see around us. And I believe the evidence points to just that. I want you to consider a couple of quotes from a couple of ex-atheists. These were people that had dedicated their lives to science and dedicated their lives to um, explaining things in science without God in the picture. And a couple of them that decided after studying some of those things, they could no longer do that. Dr. Oliver has a Master's of Science degree in Life Science and a Ph.D. in Evolutionary Biology. He is the founder and CEO of Confound the Wise Ministries. He was originally an atheist, but Dr. Oliver admits that in studying the anatomy of specimens, it became very apparent that life was designed. He became a Christian in 1987, and he is quoted as saying this, I remember how frustrated I became when, as a young atheist, I examined specimens under the microscope. I would often walk away and try to convince myself that I was not seeing examples of extraordinary design, but merely the product of some random, unexplained mutations. This is a man who had an open mind, and this is a man who was honestly looking at the evidence, and as he was looking at it, he thought, You know, I'm trying to find a way to explain this as random chance events, and I can't. And he left atheism, and he became a Christian because of the things that he saw in science. I want you to consider one more. Dr. Alistair McGrath is a theologian, apologist, and scientist. He uh, holds a Ph.D. in molecular biophysics. He was a former atheist. He has now become an outspoken Christian. He is quoted as saying this, Atheism, I began to realize, rested on a less than satisfactory evidential basis. The arguments that had once seemed bold, decisive, and conclusive increasingly turned out to be circular, tentative, and uncertain. And there are words from a man who had dedicated his life to explaining science without God. And he says, I can't do it. The arguments for atheism didn't hold up against the arguments for a God. Consider their words if you don't want to take mine. The evidence for God is astounding. And if the Bible is true that God created everything, then how can you doubt that it's true about anything else that's in the book? If we can establish that science supports that God created the heavens and the earth, then everything else in Scripture is easy, easy to explain. I believe they are inspired. Let's consider evidence for created life. What's the predominant theory today, right? The universe is the Big Bang Theory, but when it comes to you and I, life on earth, well, it's evolution, right? We'd call it evolution. Might call it natural selection as the process that that evolution occurs. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's what the scripture says. God created man 
He created woman. He breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Well, that's not what science says. Science says that life itself, again, came from nothing. That in the beginning, while this earth was still, you know, way past ancient times, not fully formed yet, there's uh, this chemical soup matter that out of that, these chemicals combine and they begin to work with each other and they form the first protein and then they bind together and then the first DNA sequence is formed and then... And over time and over time, life grew out of this pond of chemicals, out of nothing. The Bible disagrees. The law of biogenesis is the law that the Bible espouses, but I want you to know it's a law that science espouses. I'm going to explain what this is. The law of biogenesis is the observation that living things come only from other living things by reproduction. For example, a spider will lay eggs. Those eggs will hatch into young spiders. Those spiders will go, and at some point in their life, they'll lay eggs, and more spiders will come to be. It's life creating life. Life coming from life. That's the law of biogenesis. Well, that's a scientific principle. This was determined by microbiologist Louis Pasteur in uh, 1864 after a series of experiments attempting to provoke spontaneous generation. You've heard of spontaneous Right, That it just comes from nothing. He's trying to prove this. After obtaining the results, he said, spontaneous generation is a dream. And he determined that the law of biogenesis, which says that life only comes from life, is true. Yet evolutionists today want us to believe that you and I became life for the first time by non-living material. Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz, an evolutionist and professor of anthropology at the University of Pittsburgh, said this. This is not a creationist. This is an evolutionist. He says, It was and still is the case that with the exception of Dabansky's claim about a new species of fruit fly, the formation of a new species by any mechanism has never been observed. What is he saying? The formation of a new species by any mechanism has never been observed. Observe. You know what he's saying? Life only comes from life. A dog gives birth to another dog. A cat gives birth to another cat. A spider lays eggs that become spiders. And no species has arisen out of anything else in any other way but that. It's the law of biogenesis. Yet evolution today will tell us that every life came out of nothing. Non-living chemical material. Dr. Leslie Orgel, an evolutionist and chemistry professor, said this, One might have to conclude that life could never, in fact, have originated by chemical means. This professor was trying to figure out how proteins or nucleic acids could have arisen without the other. I'm not a scientist, so forgive me. I'm presenting some things about science. I don't proclaim to have a a depth of understanding of a lot of these things. But he is saying, he's trying to figure out how one part can arise without the other, and he essentially concludes they can't. We might have to conclude that life could never, in fact, have originated by chemical means. In other words, life only comes from life. And isn't that what Genesis says? Genesis chapter 1, verse 11, And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. 
And Genesis 1.25, And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Isn't that how God set it up? Life giving life. That's the law of biogenesis. Science recognizes that principle and yet ignores it when it comes to the beginning of life on earth. I want you to consider another argument for creation of life, and that's the concept of irreducible complexity. That's what it's called. And all that means is that there are some things that are so complex that they could not have originated through evolution. Consider natural selection. If you remember your history uh, or science textbooks, you remember what natural selection is presented as being, right? I want to read you the description or the definition of natural selection from Encyclopedia Britannica. And it says, In natural selection, those variations in the genotype that increase an organism's chances of survival and procreation are preserved and multiplied from generation to generation at the expense of less advantageous ones. Evolution often occurs as a consequence of this process. In other words, what natural selection, you might remember presented first by Charles Darwin, says is this. As an organism is evolving, any of those genes or those systems that it has that will help it in the future, that will help it to survive or prolong its life, it's going to hold on to those. And any of those that won't be as helpful, it's going to get rid of in order to keep the better genes so that it will evolve, right? That's the theory. That's what science will tell you Tell you, happens. Well, I don't believe that for a moment. Irreducible complexity is the argument that there are things such as the eye. That is so complex that there is no way that by natural selection the eye could have formed. Now, I want you to consider, you're not supposed to be able to read the text on that, by the way. Don't worry about that. It's just showing how complicated... The eye is, and I want you to consider, the eye has over two million working parts. Two million in one small little eye can see depth, color, size, and details, refracts and focuses light, converts light into electrical impulses that are sent to the brain. The eye only serves a purpose when all of its complex parts are working in unison. The eye only serves a purpose when all of those parts are working together so that the eye works. If half the eye doesn't function, the whole eye doesn't function. It doesn't help to have half of the genes or half of the working parts in the eye. Everything has to be working in order for the eye to function. So consider natural selection. Remember, it's the process of taking those genes, those qualities that will help it in the future and maintaining those. How would natural selection have known that one small part of that complex eye would be helpful? without knowing the eye in the first place. Either an organism had no eye, and then all of a sudden it has a complex eye, or there's no other way in which the eye would exist. Because to keep one part of the eye in the genes wouldn't make sense. It does no good. It would have gotten rid of whatever small parts or genes that contain the eye. Because without all of them, the eye is worthless. And natural selection would have deemed it worthless and useless to have. The eye could never have arisen through natural selection as science today tells you natural selection works. It's too complex. Only when all of those complex parts work together does the eye function. Natural selection would have known that. But God knew that. God designed it. Evolution requires gradual transitions in an organism. 
That's why they call it irreducible complexity. You can't back it up. You can't reduce the eye in stages and have a less effective eye. It either is an eye or it's not. Natural selection couldn't have given us the eye. I want you to know the man that uh, started that belief or that theory of natural selection, he agrees with that. He said in his book, Origin of the Species, in a chapter entitled Difficulties with the Theory, this is what he says, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Now here's the man that came up with the theory. And he said, you know what? I agree. There's no way natural selection can account for the eye. It's too amazing. It's too complex. It couldn't have happened. And yet science today will tell you that all of the complex systems, all of the complex organs, all of the amazing things that our bodies can do, it all happened by chance. It originated from non-living material. And all of that, I believe, is foolishness. Can't you look at things like this and see the hand of God? Can't you look into science and the evidence and see God working? Proverbs 20 and verse 12, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord hath made even both of them. And I believe that. And I hope you believe that. Some of the evolutionists of today and of recent times have even made some statements about natural selection, about the creation of life that I think you'll find interesting. Uh, Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist, replying to a critique of his faith in the liberal uh, journal Science and Creation Belief, said this, Of course we can't prove there isn't a God. But he'll espouse that there's not one. Scott Todd, a biology professor at the University of Kansas, said, Even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such such a hypothesis is excluded from science because it is not naturalistic. Here's an admission from an evolutionist saying, you know what? Even if we had data and evidence that's pointing there, we don't show it. We're not presenting it because it's not naturalistic. It's not something that we can explain here on this earth that we come uh, in the form in which they're espousing. Mark Singham, a physicist, speaking of the trust students naturally place in their highly educated college professors. The book Teaching and Propaganda Physics Today said this, And I use that trust to effectively brainwash them. Our teaching methods are primarily those of propaganda. We appeal, without demonstration, to evidence that supports our position. We only introduce arguments and evidence that supports the currently accepted theories and omit or gloss over any evidence to the contrary. Now, he's telling the truth right there. And and I found some of these quotes thinking, it's astounding to me that they're admitting these things. But they're admitting these things. He says, I use the trust that the students place in me. And I gloss over the information that I don't want to have to try to explain. And I use the information and I tell them and I teach the information that I want to that fits my agenda. And that's sad to me. One more. Richard Lewontin, an evolutionary biologist in the review of The Demon-Haunted World by Carl Sagan, said this, We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. 
in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated commitment to materialism, we are forced by our priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and set of concepts, get this part, that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. And there's another admission for you. I don't believe, and don't get me wrong, I don't believe every college professor is doing this. I don't believe every science teacher is doing this. I don't believe, but there are some that are. And don't be blind to the fact that some people are pushing theories and hypotheses and things that they want to be true as fact because they want you to believe that they're fact and they don't want you to know and to believe that all of the evidence actually points to an intelligent designer, to God. Makes me think of 2 Peter 3, 5-7. through 7. It says, For this they are willingly, or they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There are some people that are just willingly ignorant. And you and I have to know that and be ready to face that. Some people, no matter the evidence, no matter what you show them, no matter that it is as clear as day before you, will choose to be willingly ignorant of the facts. Because if they admit that there is a God, they must admit that the Bible too is true, that the Bible is inspired. And if they admit that the Bible is inspired, then they have to live by what the Bible says. And people today, a lot of people today, would rather choose to believe a lie that frees them to live how they want than to see the truth as clearly as it is and have to obey the God who wrote it. And that's a sad, sad shame. There are a lot more concepts that we could talk about. The law of entropy, the fact that everything is decaying, everything is winding down to a conclusion, right? DNA programming, the amazing... Look into DNA sometimes and the amazing amount of information that can be stored in our DNA and tell me that that happened by chance and not a designer. The transitional stages of evolution, you've heard that one. Where's the missing link, right? If it's all transitional, then some certain things should be in the transitional stage and we should be able to see it, and yet we don't. The human consciousness, you know, for all that science espouses that it knows, it still cannot explain human consciousness. But God made it. God created it. And I believe that if He created it, uh, I don't necessarily even have to understand everything about it because I can't tell you about human consciousness. I only know that God made it. And God made it so that we can live and inhabit these bodies and function the way that we do. For just a couple of minutes before we close, I want to consider some examples. We've looked at a case for creation and I wanted to do that because it is the biggest disagreement that there is today in science. If you're talking about science and scripture, Genesis 1 verse 1 is the biggest disagreement you're going to find, right? And so I hope that we've shown a case for creation. I hope that we've shown that evolution's not fact, that the Big Bang is not a fact. Those are theories. Those are things that people want to believe to not allow God in the door. I believe all the evidence points 
to God. And if it points to God, it points to His Word as being true and inspired. I want to tell you, it's been proven time and time again that the things that the Scripture hold are scientifically true. Now, I want to make clear, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. It's not its purpose. It's not why it was written to be a scientific textbook. So don't take it like that. But consider that whatever science may be found within its pages, if it's inspired, it's going to end up being true, right? In 1882, an evolutionist and biologist named Hubert Spencer gave the world five scientific categories by which all natural phenomena can be divided. Time, force, energy, space, and matter. And those were the five. It was a a great scientific revelation, revelation, right? Genesis 1 verse 1 we've already read. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. This was written in 1400 BC. That is about uh, 32, 3300 years before this man gave us these principles. And yet in that first verse of the Bible, I believe you'll see all five of those categories. In the beginning, there's your time. God, there's your force. Created, there's your energy. The heaven, there's your space. And the earth, there's your matter. And it's just interesting to me that a great scientific principle like this would be contained in the very first verse of Scripture. Just interesting to think about. In 168 AD, there's a man named Claudius Ptolemy, very... uh, popular uh, scientist, uh, astronomer. He counted 1,056 stars in the sky. Now, Ptolemy never uh, said that that was the max amount of stars that could exist. He didn't. But the scientific community around him began to believe this and accepted this as scientific fact. And the scientific world believed that there were just over about 1,000 stars in the sky total. It wasn't until a man named Galileo came along, you may remember, remember him, that he discovered that actually there's a whole lot more. And when we first were viewing something that looked like a star, it actually wasn't a star. It was actually a group of a lot of different stars that we could only see or perceive as one. He said this, The galaxy is in fact nothing but a congeries of innumerable stars grouped together in clusters. And what is even more remarkable, the stars which have been called nebulous by every astronomer to this time turn out to be groups of very small stars arranged in a wonderful manner. Okay, so finally we have the scientific proof that, hey, there's not a thousand stars. The stars are innumerable. We can't even count them. There's so many, we can't even count. I want you to recognize the scriptures, thousands of years before these revelations were made, the scriptures said as much. In Genesis 15 and verse 5, says, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward the heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. This was written again about 1400 B.C. Through the inspiration of God, Moses writes this, If thou be able to number them. Essentially, it's a rhetorical thing. He's saying you can't number the stars, and that's how I'm going to make your descendants. He wasn't saying I'm going to give you a thousand descendants. He's saying I'm going to give you an innumerable amount of descendants. Jeremiah in about 580 BC wrote this, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. Isn't it interesting that the scripture thousands of years before science realized there's an innumerable amount of stars, the Bible said it first. Just interesting to think about. For the past 3,000 years, bloodletting has been practiced. Bloodletting. Nasty practice of causing someone to bleed and thinking that bleeding out will actually help the virus or the infection or the disease that that person has. This was only discredited as recently as the late 19th century. Uh, George Washington is said to have died this way in 1799 from bloodletting. 
Man now knows that blood is necessary for survival. If our bodies lose too much blood, we will die. That's common sense knowledge today, right? Well, Leviticus gives us a small picture into this. Written by Moses, again, about 1400 B.C., he said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, he's talking about animal sacrifices here in the context. But the reason why they were required to do a living sacrifice, God said, because the life is in the blood. And blood must be sacrificed because that's where the life is contained. Now, he's talking about animal sacrifices, but you get a little scientific view and picture into the mind of God. God knew, and in 1400 B.C., Moses penned the words, the life's in the blood. Yet, as of a couple hundred years ago, our first president died uh, from them purposely removing his blood, thinking that would help. Just interesting to think about. In about 384 to 322 B.C., there's a man named Aristotle. You probably remember him. He was the first to offer evidence of a spherical earth. You remember there's a lot of ideas about the earth and whether the earth was flat or or circle or what, what the earth really was. Aristotle was the first to offer evidence of a spherical earth. Eratosthenes about a hundred years later, so estimated the Earth's circumference. And he actually did a pretty good, accurate job, amazingly, for that early in history. Estimated the circumference of the Earth. Ptolemy, we already mentioned him, a couple hundred years later, 90 to 168 AD, advanced many logical arguments supporting the idea of a spherical Earth. And Ferdinand Magellan finally proved that the Earth was circular, in 1519 to 1522 when he circumnavigated the globe. You may remember that from your history, right? Isaiah 40 and verse 22. In about 740 uh, to 680 B.C., Isaiah wrote sometime in that span, and he wrote this through the inspiration of God. He said, It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And this is about 400 years, 300 years before we have the first scientific record of anybody saying, Hey, maybe the earth is a circle. Maybe it's a sphere. And the scriptures say that it is before any of that. Consider this one. Matthew Maury, 1806-1873, is commonly known as the father of oceanography. He was among the first to discover and chart systematic ocean currents. Maury's research was inspired by a verse found in Psalm 8 and 8, which says, The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of of the sea. Again, not a scientific textbook, but it gives us little clues. And the writer here, through inspiration, says there are paths in the sea. Well, how is anybody supposed to know that? How is anybody supposed to know that deep down at the bottom of the ocean there are currents? Anybody this far back in history wouldn't have known that. Wasn't it proven until a couple hundred years ago when Mari did it? And he said, you know what got me looking? The Bible. Because it said there were paths in the sea. And guess what he found? All sorts of currents and paths that exist in the sea. And this was written about 1,000 B.C., about 3,000 years ago. I have a couple more for you and then we'll close. In 800 B.C., Homer, you remember him, the, the popular writer, Homer's the Iliad, the Odyssey. Homer illustrated the belief that most of the water in the rivers originated under the earth. This has to do with the water cycle, hydrological cycle illustrated the belief that most of the water in the rivers originated from under the earth, that that's what filled rivers, was underground water. Greek scholars about 300 years later speculated that some of the water in rivers, hey, may be attributed to rain. 
Bartholomew of England in 1240 A.D. and Leonardo da Vinci in 1500 A.D. believed that rain alone was insufficient to feed rivers and underground water was the main contributor to river water. That still the majority of water you find in rivers, it's being pushed up from underground to feed those rivers. Bernard Palissy in 1580 A.D. was the first published thinker to assert that rainfall alone may actually be sufficient for the maintenance of rivers. And Pierre Perrault Uh, A little while later, 100 years later, tested and proved that theory. And yet these beliefs still were not accepted in mainstream science until the early 1800s. And finally people got that, hey, it's actually rain that fills the rivers and not underground water. Well, what do the scriptures have to say about that? Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 7. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again alluding to the cycle of water. Now, listen to this one in Amos. Amos 9, 6. It is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven and hath founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Here in Amos, written about 750 B.C., a long, long time ago, we see a picture, a view into the mind of God as Amos was being inspired by God to write. There's no way on earth that Amos, as a writer, would have had any clue about evaporation, about the waters of the seas evaporating into clouds, clouds being pushed by wind over to the, to the land and then releasing that water back onto dry land, those filling the rivers, and then the rivers coming back and filling the oceans. He would have had no idea about that. Science didn't until hundreds and thousands of years later. And yet the Bible says that God takes that water from the sea And he pours it out over the land. It's amazing to me to see the proof that exists within Scripture. And one more. Charles Darwin, we've already talked about him. One that he got right. He said in 1871, or was one of the first to propose the common descent of living organisms. For a lot of time, the scientific community has debated whether we all come from one original person or whether we come from separate people or separate races, if you will, developed from different places. And there's been a lot of dispute about that. Darwin proposed that, hey, we're actually all from one, the common descent. The debate in anthropology had swung in the favor of monogenism, that is, coming all from one gene, by the mid-20th century. And then three people, Alan Wilson, Rebecca Kahn, and Mark Stoneking in the 1980s, worked on what's called the mitochondrial Eve hypothesis. This has to do with mitochondrial DNA. After their DNA studies, they concluded that modern human populations had diverged recently from a single population. And this is now the prevailing theory in science today, that we all come from a common ancestor. Interesting, though, to me, that thousands of years before, 2,000 years to be exact, in about 60 A.D., Luke, who penned the book of Acts under the inspiration of God, wrote this, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. The Bible is not a science textbook, but what we find time and time again is the Bible mentions something that we can go to science and say, Is this true or not? And you know what? Time and time again... Science has backed up the truth of Scripture. And I want us to recognize that. 
And I want us to think about that in the sense of creation and evolution. It's the biggest debate of our current generation and of our time. Did God create everything? Is Genesis 1-1 true and inspired? And I want you to consider the fact that time and time again, science has backed up Scripture. Just because at this point, just because at this point, mainstream science will not and has not accepted that God created the earth does not mean that at some point in the future, they won't. Because after every example we've looked at, there were times when they thought something different and a time when they finally said, you know what? What the Bible said all along was actually true. I want to read you a couple more quotes as we close. Jonathan Wells is an American molecular biologist, author, and advocate of intelligent design. He said, When you analyze all of the most current affirmative evidence from cosmology, physics, astronomy, biology, and so forth, the positive case for an intelligent designer becomes absolutely compelling. And Francis Crick, biochemist and spiritual skeptic, shared the Nobel Prize for discovering the molecular structure of DNA, said an honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to be satisfied to get it going. I want you to leave the sermon, leave the the building this evening with these thoughts in mind. Just because science says something is true or says something is fact doesn't make it fact. Do the research. Do the studying. And see from the lips of the evolutionists themselves the admissions that they make. Remember that the evidence that exists in looking at the complexities of our planet, in looking at the laws of uh, the universal laws that exist, the cause and effect, in looking at the fact that life only gives way to life, And all of the other things that we've talked about, all of that evidence points to a God that created it. And if God created it, then Genesis 1 verse 1 is true. And if Genesis 1 verse 1 is true, that means the scriptures are inspired. I'll leave you with the verse we started with, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 20, where Paul said, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called Knowledge. Don't believe knowledge or science just because it says that it is so. Don't allow yourself to stray concerning the faith because scientists or atheists or people with a lot of letters behind their names try to convince you that God doesn't exist. Do the research and see what the evidence says for itself. If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, I want you to know the most important decision that you can make is to follow Christ in your life. If you've been taught from the Scriptures and you know who Jesus Christ is, you believe that He's the Son of God, you're willing to confess His name, willing to repent, to change your life, to obey Him in baptism, you can become a child of God today. If you're a Christian here this evening, but maybe you've struggled with something, maybe you have a a sin issue in your life, maybe you have a, a belief problem you've struggled with, your brothers and sisters in Christ want to pray with you and to pray for you. And if we can help you in any way, we ask that you come sit on a front pew as we stand and sing.